Father, this morning, uh, we are going to be opening your word and we're going to be learning from you about what true unity is. And God, as we all know, we are living in a time right now where there is so much that can disrupt or threaten unity. And as I think about Jesus in John chapter 17, as, as he prayed for the disciples and he prayed for the church that they would start and they would lead, his main prayer for the church is that they would be one and they would be united. And so God, as we jump into a, a short sermon series thinking about uh, what does true unity look like in the body of Christ? I pray, God, that you would convict every one of our hearts individually about the specific places, God, where we need to be challenged and exhorted and the specific places where we can apply the, the amazing truths of your word. And so, God, we just pray that you would illumine the scriptures to each and every one of us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I said, I'm excited to jump into uh, just a short three-week sermon series called Humanity. Now, we are in the midst of a cultural moment where the diversity and the division of humanity is on full display. I obviously don't need to uh, explain that or how that is happening. But today in our culture, today within the church, it is very easy to be divided. Uh, so on issues of race and justice, it's easy to be divided. On the proper response to COVID, it's easy to be divided on how our schools should open up come this fall. I know a lot of those announcements have come out. It's easy to be divided over that. On politics in a very contentious election year, it is easy to be divided and a host of all kinds of other topics. And the church is no stranger to all sorts of things, including everything I just mentioned, and then some causing division you know, within the body of Christ. And I've seen bits of pieces of this in, in our own congregation, threats to our unity. And when it comes to the church at large, the church in general, uh, the division within is, is so apparent, especially to the rest of the world. And so what I want to do is I want to just take three weeks as we emerge out of quarantine, we know when that happens, and as we begin to think about regathering as the church slowly and safely, what I want to do is just take these three weeks and I want to talk about what it looks like for our church, Grace Hill Church, here in Herndon, Virginia, us. What does it look like for us to pursue actual unity together and to fight division. Because I believe that God is most glorified when humanity is unified. Right? I think the scripture makes an airtight case on that, that when humanity is unified, God is most glorified. But what we need to do is put some definitions upon that statement. Like what do we mean by unity? And what does it look like when humanity is actually unified? When it comes to all of the diversity within humanity, how does 
humanity actually become united in a way that glorifies God? We got to answer that question. And the reason is because Grace Hill Church, as long as I'm a pastor here, as long as our current elders, our elders here, we will be a church that pursues actual unity. And as we'll discover today, actual unity is not easy. It requires having the mind of Christ and taking on the form of a servant, each and every one of us. It requires everyone to practice humility, to practice empathy, to put down our defenses, consider one another more significant than ourselves. It requires going to uncomfortable places and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And so, to to give us a vision of what actual unity is and how we pursue it, what I want to do is study two passages of Scripture with you this morning. One from Genesis chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel, and one from Acts chapter 2, which is Pentecost. So let's read both of these, and then we'll see what we learn from both of them. So go ahead, grab your Bible and and open it to Genesis 11. We're going to read uh, verses 1 to 9. Now, let me give you just a little bit of context here. So in Genesis 11, uh, we are after the flood with Noah, but we're before Abraham in the narrative. And so right now, we are kind of reading the story of Noah's descendants, his sons, and all of the people that came from them. And it's this small homogenous population on earth right now in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse one. And we're going to read about them. So let's read this Genesis 11 verses one to nine. Says this starting in verse one. Now the whole earth, the whole earth. So think about this, had one language in the same words. So we're talking about a homogenous group of people here. And as people migrated from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, what we have here is a kind of unity, right? Uh, But what I'm going to do is I'm going to refer to the unity that we see here in Genesis chapter 11 as fake unity, fake unity. All right. And, and, And here's why. 
in this text, in Genesis 11, we have a, a homogenous group of people who unified together for one purpose. And that purpose was stated here in verse four, right? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. That's the purpose of their unity, the mighty works of man. The glory of man is why they unified together. All right, and so I'm going to define fake unity as a kind of unity that is centered on the works and the purposes of man as opposed to being centered on the glory and the works of God, right? So, so we know from the scriptures that humanity is created and made in the image of God. What this means is that God's creative purpose for mankind is that we would glorify him, we would represent him, we would image him, point to him with our lives in the way that we live our lives. And so true unity is when humanity unifies together for the purposes that God created them to, to glorify God. But fake unity is when man unifies together for the purpose of glorifying man, okay? True and fake unity. So in our text, what we see is fake unity and what God does is he deliberately puts an end to it. And what's interesting is what God does to stop uh, humanity from unifying around themselves and to encourage them to unify around himself is to create diversity. Look at this in the text. What God does to stop fake unity and encourage actual unity is he creates diversity. The method that God uses to stop fake unity is diversity. He scatters humanity across the face of the earth and he gives them different languages. Okay, so this is the picture that we get in Genesis 11. Fake unity and God inserts diversity into the world to scatter that fake unity and encourage actual unity. Now, let's jump to Acts chapter two. So all the way over the other part of your Bible, All right, fifth book of your New Testament. All right, right after the book of John, we got Acts. Now, a lot has happened between Genesis 11 and Acts chapter two. Okay, so let me kind of help us to understand where we're at now in the Bible. Okay, so uh, as we continue to read in Genesis, God raises up a people for himself. This is the nation of Israel and God gives them a law. And the purpose of this law was to show us that we do not have the righteousness, we do not have the ability to be reconciled back to God on our own. The law is it's too heavy for us to carry or to be able to keep. Right, So the law is meant to show us that our only hope is that we need a savior. We need somebody else to reconcile us, to mediate this relationship with God. And so keep going in your Bible and God sends the Messiah, his son, Jesus. And Jesus, uh, who lives this perfectly righteous life, lives the life that, that we could not live in accordance with the law. And then Jesus offers this life as a sacrifice to God 
upon the cross. And, and because Jesus does that, he atones for your sin and my sin. We're able to have forgiveness of our sins now. And then Jesus is put into the grave and he's raised again three days later, defeating death so that we could have eternal life. So the Bible teaches us that everyone who places their faith and trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is going to have their sins washed away because Christ paid for them on the cross and they will be forever reconciled to God, uh, given eternal life, forever in God's family, an adopted child of God because Jesus rose again from the dead. All right, so, so all of this has happened between Genesis 11 and Acts 2. And here's why that's so significant. It's because now that Jesus has accomplished redemption for us, that he's been the one to rescue us from our sin, there is now something that all of humanity can unite around that is glorifying to God. Jesus has made a way that all people could be made right with God and be united as brothers and sisters in God's family. And all that has happened between Genesis 11 and Acts 2. And in Acts 2, we read about this moment that we call Pentecost. Uh, this is right after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and there's this group of the very first Christians, the very first believers in Jesus, and they're gathered together in Jerusalem. See, in Genesis 11, we see God descend upon a group of people and he spreads them out in order to disrupt their fake unity. But in Acts chapter two, we are gonna read again about God himself descending upon a group of people, and let's see what he does. All right, Acts chapter two, I'm gonna read verses one to 13. It says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. These are the, the first Christians, the first believers in Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So, so real quick, just so you get the picture, you have a small group of believers gathered together in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to speak. Now, in Jerusalem are all of these people, it says from every nation under heaven. So you've got all kinds of people from all over the world in Jerusalem. They hear the sound and all the commotion. They go to see what's happening. And this group of people who just received the Holy Spirit, they're speaking and every 
person from all of these nations can understand what they are saying in their own language. All right, so it'd be like if I'm a native English speaker, and it'd be like someone who's a native Spanish speaker, they're speaking, and I can understand them in English, but this person can understand them in Chinese, and this person can understand them in whatever other language. And so this is what's happening. Okay, God is giving them the ability to speak to everyone there from all of the nations. That's what's happening. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome all over the map, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine, right? They're drunk. And that obviously wasn't the case. All right, so on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. There's a group of disciples of Jesus who, who gathered together waiting to receive direction from God about their task, right? Because before Jesus left, he said, you guys are gonna go start the church. You're gonna make disciples of all nations. So they're waiting for instructions. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, right? They were unified together around their shared faith in Jesus Christ. And God visited them by the Holy Spirit, comes upon them. But this is a different kind of unity than what we saw in the Tower of Babel. At Babel, mankind had united around their own works and purposes. But here in Jerusalem, this group of disciples had united around, and it's there right there in verse 11 for you, around the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God, specifically the life, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. This is what they were united around. And when God visited them, he didn't do it to disrupt their unity like happened at Babel. No, God came down and threw gas upon their unity, lighting that fire to burn even hotter. And so for that moment, what he does is he removes the language barrier just for a little bit to encourage this unity. See, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel because Pentecost, at Pentecost, the church had true unity around the mighty works of God and not fake unity around the works of man. But this is what I want you to see this morning. Although Pentecost is the reversal of Babel, Pentecost was not the reversal of diversity. God did not erase ethnic identity or culture, nor did he permanently remove the language barrier within the church. 
God's creative attention, intention all along was for humanity to be diverse because, and we're going to study this more in depth next week, the vision that God gives us of his kingdom for all of eternity in the future is one that is very carefully and specifically described as diverse, where it's described as all nations, tribes, and tongues coming together to worship and bring glory to God. See, at Babel, God created diversity because diversity will subvert fake unity. But at Pentecost, these people found true unity around Jesus in light of their diversity. So so God is most glorified when humanity is unified in light of their diversity, right? Don't you see it? Diversity makes true unity possible. Homogeneity, I don't think I said that right, right? Makes it easier to have fake unity. Because when we're all the same, we don't have to fight for unity because our common ground is is us. But that's that's fake unity. But when we're diverse, when we're from different cultures, when we speak different languages, when we have different life experiences, when we have different upbringings, we have to fight for unity. And the only place where it can be found is the mighty works of God in Christ. So in light of this truth, what do we do? This morning, what I want to do is I want to give us uh, three things, just three things that we must all do to fight for true unity within our church in light of what we uh, just learned. Three things, how we fight for true unity within our church. And here's number one. The first thing is we all, every one of us need to set our gaze upon Christ. Set our gaze upon Christ. It's clear in the text The kind of unity that brings glory to God, the kind of unity that God is going to throw gas upon so it will burn hotter, is unity around Christ. Unity around any other thing, even if those things are good things or good causes, it's a kind of unity that God will eventually disrupt. And so for for the church to experience true unity together, all of us must set our gaze upon Christ, meaning all of us both together and individually must evaluate if Christ and him crucified and him raised and his mighty works is of first importance in our hearts. Because If there are any other things or any other causes that takes a higher place of importance in our hearts, then we will be tempted to seek to find other people who value those same things over Christ and unite with them around those things. And what happens is, is that churches form and grow with a homogenous group of people who unknowingly value certain things or causes over Christ. A a fake unity is formed, and yet they still slap a gospel label on it. Now, I know there might be some people who would say, Alan, 
Amen. Like, yes, we all need to be united around the gospel, united around Jesus. And that's it. And all of these people in the church who keep on bringing up these topics like race and justice, they're actually dividing us. They're not unifying us around Jesus because they're distracting us from the gospel to these other issues like race and justice, right? They're elevating that over the gospel. Some people might be thinking this, but... Not so fast. Let's think about this for just a second. Why does the topic of race and justice seem so controversial in the church? Especially the evangelical church. I believe it's because this topic is oftentimes a threat to subtle fake unity that exists in the church. Where the unity in the church, while people say it's the gospel, actually is around something like maybe a political philosophy or a particular cultural preference. That, that's where the true unity is found. And so you have this homogenous group that comes together and it allows fake unity to exist unnoticed. But... When diversity is introduced and and mixed in, just like Babel, it subverts the fake unity. People from different cultures, different life experiences, different perspectives, they, they come in and they can see the fake unity because they are not part of that homogenous core. And so they begin to speak about it and talk about it. And so in a desire to seek true unity in Christ, people bring up issues like race and justice because they see how these issues are fueling fake unity and excluding people from the body, even though the church claims they're unified around Christ. And when people tell minorities to stop talking about race and justice, that is divisive. It's divisive and disruptive to the fake unity of the church. This leads to the second thing we must all do to seek true unity in the church. All of us have to set our gaze upon Christ. Yes, we have to do that. But we also have to, number two, embrace discomfort. It doesn't take very long after Acts 2 to begin to read about how this diversity within the early church led to some uncomfortable encounters. Go read Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 10, Galatians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and others, where where fake unity in the church had to be disrupted through the voices of a diverse congregation. It's actually fairly common in the New Testament. And in those moments, the church has a choice. They can value comfort, put up their defense, and not value diverse voices, or they can embrace discomfort, take on the form of a servant, practice humility and empathy, and do the hard work of seeking true unity. And Grace Hill, I believe that every single one of us has things in our hearts. This includes me. It includes every one of us. We have things in our hearts that we elevate above Christ. 
And if we're not careful, we could seek fake unity around those things. And I believe that one of God's favorite tools to help us to identify those things is diversity. Ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, language, age, gender, life experience, economic diversity, upbringing, all of these things. Diversity across the board because diversity subverts fake unity. And diversity is uncomfortable because it has a way of challenging those things that we elevate above Christ. And if God is most glorified when humanity is unified, then it is an act of worship to embrace diversity and allow it to unearth the idols in our hearts. So we must embrace discomfort. We, we must allow many of our long-held thoughts and beliefs and, and, and ideas and worldviews to, to be challenged. We must humbly lay down our defenses. We got to learn to listen before we speak. Deal with the log in our own eye before we even look at the speck in our neighbor's eye. We must view ourselves not in a way where we think we're always right. We must not allow ourselves to make assumptions about one another. We have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Listen, we have to have the hard face-to-face conversations with one another. And, and this is number three, we have to fight. We have to fight for unity. We have to fight for true unity within the body of Christ. You know, just the other day, you know, we had, we had two families in our church that they got into a little bit of a conflict. It's common. It's okay. Both sides were hurt. Both sides were emotional. Both sides were confused. And the temptation was to shut down conversation, to, to do the comfortable thing and not deal with it. Don't have the hard face-to-face conversation, to make assumptions, to be defensive, to let bitterness and division win the day, to lose hope in future relationship. That was the temptation to cancel each other. But that's not what they did. They fought for unity. They had the hard conversation. They shed tears. They apologized. They forgave. They listened to one another. And they found true unity in Christ because drawing battle lines and seeking fake unity was not going to be an option for them. You have to fight for true unity. And this is what we're going to do uh, as a church. Uh, While we're in this cultural moment, while our society is in the middle of a big conversation about race and justice, we're going to embrace it. Because this is a topic where we could all learn more and grow and listen to one another. This is a place where we need to fight for unity. And so, not, not starting this week, but starting next week, the week of July 5th, we are going to begin a six-week summer small group session where we're going to embrace this conversation. We're going to divide everybody up into groups of no more than 10 people. All right, we're going to have both in-person groups and virtual groups. 
And what we're going to do is work through a video-based curriculum for six weeks called Undivided, which specifically addresses the topic of racial reconciliation within the church. And this is a curriculum by uh, two people that I respect that is going to challenge us. It's going to press us. It's going to make us have uncomfortable conversations. It's going to make us fight for unity. And so these small groups are going to last uh, from the week of July 5th to the week of uh, August 9th. And if you're in a seed community group already, you'll hear from your leader about getting, uh, getting into one of those groups um, and time and day of the week and all of that. If you're not in a community group or if you don't hear from your leader, you can go to our website, gracehillchurch.com slash groups, and you can sign up for a summer small group in there and we'll make sure you get in one. And as I said, we're going to have in-person groups and virtual groups, depending on your comfort level. So both of those will be available to you. But we're going to engage this conversation, Grace Hill. We're going to do it with one another. We're going to listen and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And we're going to lay our defenses down and we're going to find true unity around the gospel. And we're going to let our diversity encourage that true unity. The temptation, Grace Hill, is to take a hard topic like this and to do the more comfortable thing of just kind of letting this cultural moment pass. But we're not going to do that at Grace Hill. We're going to fight for true unity. We're going to have the hard conversation. We're going to be humble and listen. We're going to allow our diversity to challenge the other things we might be tempted to unite around. And so I'm asking as your pastor, I'm asking you as your pastor, would you prioritize, would you set aside the time to doing one of these groups, even if you don't want to? Would you make the time to jump into a summer small group, work through this curriculum with your brothers and sisters in Christ and have the hard conversation? I think that our church will be better for it and I think just like Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will just throw gas upon our unity when we fight for it in a way that glorifies him. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, this morning, I'm just so grateful for your word that gives us such clarity on how we ought to approach topics like these. And God, I'm so thankful for Christ who went to the cross and dealt with all of our sin and gave us the very thing that we could actually unite around. Like, I thank you that Christ not only reconciles us to God, but he also reconciles us to one another. And so God, I pray that we as a church would embrace that truth and embrace our diversity lay down our defenses, humble ourselves, and unite around the gospel and allow the areas, Lord, that we might elevate above Christ to be challenged and, Lord, eventually to be done away with in our hearts. And, Lord, we know that that is not easy work. It's uncomfortable work. But, Lord, we want to embrace it as a church and fight for unity. And we thank you that the gospel makes that possible. So Lord, I pray you would bless us as we do that. I pray, God, you would lay it upon the hearts of the people in our church to jump into a small group and to make this happen and to do this and to jump in. 
We love you, God. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.